I'm going to pray and then we'll kick off this morning's Bible study. Father, thank you for creating a family, for inviting us to be reconciled back into your family. Thank you for establishing a covenant with a people long ago and extending redemption through an act of rescuing and then going another step and reconciling God. We love you. We love your word. And we're here, Father, so that your spirit can change us as we study the Bible together as a family. So we pray that you would bless our endeavor, Lord. We want to see the fruits of our labor. But God, we want to see it in your time. And we want to see it through your way and in accordance with your will. So bless what we're doing this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you are under the age of 13, come on up. Let's go. If you're under the age of 13, come on up here. I need the tallest kid right here under the age of 13, and I need the smallest kid under the age of 13 on this side. So age doesn't matter. Tallest to smallest. Now, you're going to look at me. You're going to look at me. So tallest. Let's go. Age doesn't matter. Tallest to smallest. Right here. Right here. You're on this side right here. And then on this side. Okay, good. All right. It's family service. So we're going to do something for the kids and then we're going to do something for the adults. Okay, guys. Have you ever played Connect the Dots? Yeah. Yeah? Raise your hand if you haven't played Connect the Dots, if you haven't. Okay. I've gone out. When I was a kid, I used to go out to eat with my mom and dad. And on the dinner mat, you know, the server would give me some crayons. And there would be a thing and it would say, Connect the Dots. Sometimes I'd be at home. I'd open up a coloring book. And it would say, connect the dots. I'd take my marker and my pencil and I would connect the dots. This morning, we are learning how to connect the dots. This is Ruth. Say Ruth. Ruth. This is Abraham or Abram. Say Abram. So who's this? And who's this? All right. And today we're learning how to connect the dots. Okay. We're going to connect the dots. So let's see. Jackson, can you read? Let's put the next slide up. Can you read this out loud, nice and loud for me? Okay. All right, thank you. Give him a round of applause. Okay, let's put the next slide up. Truth, can you read this one for me, please? Okay, so we're connecting dots. So let's put the next slide up. Yeah, give Truth a round of applause too. Yeah, yeah, very good. We got some excellent readers in the house. All right, so look. We're connecting the dots, so we're looking for a common theme, all right? Look, Ruth, remember, this is Ruth, right? Ruth had to leave her father and her mother. Abraham, he had to leave his relatives, and Abraham had to leave his father's family. Ruth, Ruth had to leave the land of her birth, and Abraham had to leave his native country. So these are common themes, right? So Abraham and Ruth, although they lived a long time apart from each other, they had things in common, okay? So let me ask you guys this question. And if you know the answer, or you think you know the answer, just raise your hand, all right? 
Actually, hold on. I'm going to give you guys one more thing. Let's go to the next one. I need you to say appears. appears. Say speaks. speaks. Say makes a promise. Make a promise. So God appears to, he speaks to, and he makes a promise to Abraham in the book of Genesis. All right? But in the book of Ruth, God is silent. He's hidden. He's behind the scenes. In the book of Ruth, God never appears to anyone like he appears to Abraham. In the book of Ruth, God does not speak to anyone like he speaks to Abraham. And in the book of Ruth, God makes no promises like he does in Genesis when he speaks to Abraham. Okay? So now we've connected the dots on some similarities. And we've connected the dots on things that are different. All right? So now let me ask you a question. If God appeared to Abraham... And if God spoke to Abraham, and if God made a promise to Abraham, but he never did anything like that to Ruth, and they both had to leave their families, and they both had to leave their land, who do you think had it harder? Correct, Ruth. Ruth would have had it harder. Give her a round of applause. So we're just going to do a quick recap and then Callan has some treats for everyone for coming up and participating. Here's our recap. Okay? Ruth and Abraham had to leave who and where? Uh, their family and their country. Give them a round of applause. Good job. And Georgia gave us the answer, but I want someone else to remind us all who had it harder. Who had it harder? Raise your hand if you... What's the answer? Abram. Abram or Ruth? There you go. Ruth. Give them a round of applause. All right. Give me five. Give me five. Give them all three candies apiece. Give them five. Give me five. Give me five. Give me five. Good job, everybody. Give me five. Good job. Thank you for reading. Thank you for reading. Callan's going to give you guys some candy. Once you get your candy, go back to your parents and ask them if you can eat it. If they say you can eat it, you can eat it. Eat it. <laughs> uh, uh, there you go. <laughs> Dad's going to tax them, so give them four. Ah. <laughs> uh, All right, let's reel it in, everybody. As the kids are returning to their seats, parents, I want you guys to know, this is how we equip the next generation. This is how we train the next generation. We read one Bible verse to them from one story, and then we read another Bible verse to them from another story, and we ask them to make observations Nobody is brainwashing anybody around here. Nobody is indoctrinating somebody against their will around here. Here, in this church and in this environment, we ask you to read the Bible and think for yourself. It doesn't matter if you're an adult or if you're a child. We're all in need of being guided, but everybody needs to learn how to think critically. And so we're teaching our kids how to think critically, and as adults, we're learning how to think critically, and we're equipping one another in the process. This is how we roll at AC Squared. So now that the Sunday school portion for the kids is over, it's time for the adults and children. Remember, 
We want you to pay attention and participate with us because we believe that you too can learn something from what it is that we're going to study this morning. Okay? Today's text comes from Ruth chapter 3. We're going to read five verses today. Then Naomi said to her mother-in-law, I'm sorry, then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. We're five verses in everybody. Five verses into chapter three. And we may be tempted after reading something like this to be like, this is one of the most scandalous plans that I've ever read in the whole of the Old Testament. <laughs> but get ready, because as soon as we think something like that, we take a deep breath. And we start to analyze the Rolodex of the Old Testament in our mind. Is it one of the most scandalous strategies in the Old Testament? Think about Abram's wife, Sarai, and Sarai and Hagar. You know, Sarai is a little bit angry with God. God is moving just a little bit too slow for Abram and Sarai. So she's like, hey, yo, Abraham, come here. You know my beautiful, young, exotic, Egyptian maidservant. I want you to go into her. She's going to get pregnant. When she gets pregnant, we're going to pray that she has a son. And if she has a son, we're going to take that son as our own. And that son is going to carry our family name and legacy on because we have no child. That's a scandalous plan. And Abraham was like, I'll do it. <laughs> he was. It wasn't countercultural then. It absolutely was not countercultural. It was the standard and it was normal then. So why would Abraham say no? Yet it's still a scandalous plan because it goes against the will of God and the timeline of God. Sarai wants to take God's plan and she wants to make it work her way. Scandalous. Well, after thinking about that, I started to think about Lot and Lot's daughters. You know, in Genesis chapter 19... They're beating feet. Pew, pew, pew. They're running out of Sodom as it's about to get destroyed. And Lot's wife, these two daughters' mother, turns around pew, dead. They escape, though, but they camp out or they hide out in a cave. Now, you would expect that this family would be depressed because their mother and the wife of the father just died. But the daughters are, they're depressed, but they're not depressed because their mom died. They're depressed because there's no man in the whole of the land to come into us and give us an offspring so that we can carry on the family name. The older daughter's like, hey, sis, I got this great plan. Let's get dad wasted. I'm going to have sex with him. He's going to get me pregnant and then I'll have a baby. Hopefully it's a boy and I'll carry on the family name. Well, this plan, this scandalous plan of the daughter works so well that she comes in, tells her younger sister, 
hey, check this out. Let's do it again. Let's get dad wasted. And this time you sleep with him. These are Bible stories, everybody. These are in the Bible. We got to learn to teach the text to our children so that they know what is scandalous versus what is appropriate. Am I right or am I wrong? Okay, I'm just making sure we're all okay here. Everybody's looking like they're sitting on the edge of their seat. I can't believe we're talking about this in church. It comes straight out of the Bible. First book in Genesis. First book, it's called Genesis. The plan works so well. Second daughter does the same thing, gets pregnant. Older daughter has a son named Moab. Hmm. Sound familiar, right? Younger sister has a son named Ammon. These are the patriarchs of the Moabites and the Amorites. These scandalous strategies caused more problems than they brought solutions. What are we learning? Do we take back from Yahweh or do we allow him to work? How do we even navigate that, right? That's an important question. After thinking about Lot and his daughters, I started to think about Tamar and Judah. Oh my goodness. Tamar's married to one of Judah's sons. Judah. His son is married. He's a wicked man. God kills him. What? <laughs> Judah's got a responsibility. Culturally, religiously, he's got to give the next son who's not married to Tamar so that he can perpetuate the name of the son who's died. But Onan is an evil man, just like his older brother was an evil man. Onan doesn't want to perpetuate the name of his brother. So every time he goes into his, into his brother's wife, he pulls out and spills his seed on the floor. And God's like, yeah, I'm not down with this. I'm going to kill you too. Judah has two sons now who have died. Now it's fair to say that Judah and Tamar are unaware that God has consequently established his wrath by removing them from the earth. Judah is looking at Tamar and he's like, I've given you two. I'm not giving you three. I'm just not going to do it. Tamar's like, oh, okay, you don't want to fulfill your cultural and your religious oblig uh, obligation to me as a covenant member of the family? <sighs> I'll take matters into my own hands. She takes off her, her widow's garments. She dons on her prostitution gear, veils her face. She says, I know where Judah works. I know when he works. And I know how he gets there. Catches him on the side of the road, face veiled, looking all good. Come into me bamboozled. <laughs> he does it. He does it. Then he gives her his like signet and his, and, and, and like these, these things that are identifiable only to him. <laughs> she gets pregnant with twins and Judah's like, kill this immoral woman. And she's like, hold on. Who's the father? And she busts out his stuff. Scandalous stuff going on here in the Bible. Scandalous. So after considering these three Old Testament narratives, I was like, it seems like Ruth is actually in good company here with the matriarchs of Israel. Am I wrong or am I right? I mean, we're just looking at the Bible. You know, she seems to be in good company. And immediately I'm like, wow. <laughs> it's very interesting if we pause and we ask ourselves the question, what is the common theme, since we were connecting the dots with the kids, What's the common theme in these three stories? It's security. And it's security that comes only through a male offspring. What is Ruth after? What is Naomi after? Is there a connection point that we need to pick up on as adults? When we read the book of Ruth, 
in light with Genesis? I believe so. The common thread is seeking security, and it's security that comes only through a male offspring. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Can you guys read this out loud for me, please? I love it. We're in the first verse in chapter three, and we get a front row seat to what other centered theology looks like. Check it out. Shall I not seek security for you? Naomi is exerting energy and time on Ruth's behalf. This is a good mother-in-law. Back in chapter two, it was Ruth who had taken the initiative to go out. Remember, she voluntarily took the initiative to go glean in the fields of Bethlehem. But here in chapter three, it's not Ruth. It's Naomi who's taking the initiative. One scholar writes that Naomi was no longer self-absorbed, having experienced the grace and the favor of Yahweh, which had clearly come through the abundant provision of food from Boaz. Naomi was finally ready to take action once again. She's no longer feeling like Yahweh is her adversary. She's got a taste of grace and she's ready to become a woman of action once again in her life. Listen to what she says. My daughter, it's my desire that it may be well with you. Naomi has a heart for Ruth and she is after Ruth's best interests, not her own. Now, Naomi understands that long lasting security is something that her daughter is still lacking. The food that Boaz provided, that was short term. Food runs out. Raise your hand if mom buys your favorite cereal and sometimes you go to look in the, in the cabinet in the cupboard or the cabinet and you're like, mom, where's my favorite cereal? And dad's like, <laughs> right? <laughs> How often does that happen? It happens, right? So food is temporal. So Naomi knows that Ruth needs something that's long lasting. Check this out. So we're back in chapter one in verse number nine, Naomi and Ruth and Orpah are walking from Moab to Bethlehem and they stop. And Naomi's like, may the Lord see this, the Lord, who's the Lord to, Yah to, to Naomi. It's Yahweh. It's the God of Israel. So may Yahweh grant that you find rest. She tells both Ruth and Orpah this. Then we see in chapter one or in chapter three, verse one, that Naomi is seeking security, long-term security for Ruth. What slips right past us is so clear to Ruth and the original audience. Look at this. When we read rest in English in chapter one and security in English in chapter three, we see two different words with two totally different meanings. Rest in the English is different than security in the English. But in the Hebrew, we read menucha and manoah. The same root word in the Hebrew, which means that these words actually have the same definition. Naomi is seeking for Ruth and Orpah in chapter one and for Ruth in chapter three, a sense of security that comes only through marriage. This is what Naomi is after. We have to remember this as we navigate the rest of chapter three, or else we're going to get lost in the sauce. 
Now, Naomi is aware of all of this because there's no translation for Naomi like there is for us. And since Naomi knows that the type of security she's seeking comes only through marriage, she decides, you know what? It's time for the mother-in-law to play matchmaker. Raise your hand, ladies, if you've ever thought, I'm going to play matchmaker for my friend. There we go. We got a couple in the house. Come on. Men, raise your hands if you ever tried to hook your boy up. Okay, yeah, exactly. Looks like we have something in common with Sarai. Playing the old matchmaker. Another connection point for us. Just like the kids, same for us, right? So we as the adults have to ask ourselves, Naomi's taking on the role of matchmaker after we just discovered or rediscovered that back in chapter 1 in verse 9, she had committed them into the hands of Yahweh, both Orpah and Ruth. So let's ask ourselves, is it okay for Naomi to take back or to take up the responsibility of providing security for Ruth after she had already committed Ruth and Orpah into the hands of Yahweh? It's a great question, right? So before we try to answer this, I want to remind us, those of us who were here last week, do we remember when I made the claim that it's impossible to separate Yahweh from his acting agent when it comes to accomplishing his will? God works through humans' agents. He works through the Elohim, the divine agents. God has sovereignly decided that he would work in tandem with his creation. So we say that it's impossible to separate the two when it comes to talking about accomplishing God's will. That's just an opinion. There are other opinions in the church. But check this out. For the sake of consistency, because I said that last week, if we apply the same logic here, we may see, uh, we may see Naomi as God's acting agent in this scenario as well. Old Testament scholar Robert Hubbard says, Naomi's actions ultimately carry out something previously understood to be in Yahweh's jurisdiction. So Naomi's actions carry out God's will is what Robert Hubbard says. Now think about this. In response to opportunity, Naomi begins to answer her own prayer. In chapter 1, verse 9, she says, Lord, give them rest. In chapter 3, God says, Naomi, I'm going to use you to find Ruth rest. So Naomi, by God's will, becomes the effectual piece in the puzzle to answer her own prayer. Thus, Naomi models one way in which the divine will of God and human actions work together. Believers, listen to me, church. We are not to passively wait for events to happen. What's the will of God? I don't know. You better make a decision and you better move. How do we know that? Well, we look at the life of Naomi. We know that God has called us to take initiative. Paul says, live a life that is vigilant when opportunity presents itself. Naomi's actions, in effect, do execute God's will. I think it's safe to say that Naomi, in her old age, with her acquired wisdom, recognized that Boaz needed a swift kick in the rear. Boaz has already admitted back in chapter 2 that he knew Naomi and that he had heard all about Ruth. He tells Ruth this himself. He says, I have been told all that you have done on behalf of the living and the dead. I already know, Ruth. You may not know me, but I know all about you. <laughs> Old Testament scholar Phyllis Tribal says, with all of the required information that Boaz admits he had, 
he still fails to take the necessary action to secure Ruth's future in the long term. He offers her food and secures it in the short term. Therefore, Naomi decided, you know what? Just like Sarai, I'm going to give this old man some encouragement. Ladies, you ever had to watch your husband ignore doing something <laughs> and then come around and do that thing that you said you were going to do? <laughs> I live my life there. <laughs> my wife is smiling. I can tell I'm not even looking at her. She is, huh, Truth? Yeah. Yeah. So check it out. Naomi decides that it's time for Boaz to get a, some much-needed encouragement. And who knows? We don't know. We don't know if Boaz ever would have stepped up to the plate had Naomi not encouraged her. We'll never know in this life. And we may find out in the next. We may not. But we are not omniscient. So we don't know what would have happened had Naomi not taken the initiative. Put that in your back pocket, Christians. Start taking initiative. Boaz. You know, he doesn't think big picture, but Naomi thinks big picture. And when we begin to grasp why Naomi was thinking this way, we begin to understand why she wants to take matters into her own hands. Now, here's something that will help us understand this even more. Between chapter 2 closing and chapter 3 opening, a few weeks or several weeks had passed. How do we know that? We read chapter 2 in the close and we read chapter 1. All of chapter 2, except for verse 23, talks about one single day. Then you read verse 23 and you're in chapter 3, verse 1, and several weeks have passed. How do we know that? We have to learn to read the text slowly and make our observations. Let's talk about how we know that. Well, first of all, we're halfway into the book. So we are already aware as an audience that the narrator pushes the story forward and he's got no idea leaving the details out. This narrator comes along and poof, just pushes the story forward, poof, pushes the story forward. In the first five verses, it covers 10 years of the book. The first five verses of Ruth cover more time than the rest of the entire book. The rest of the book of Ruth covers a year, maybe just a little over a year. When you think about the harvest and the gestation and the birth of Obed. So it's crazy, right? Second, we see this word winnowing, winnows, and this signals to us, just as it would have signaled to the original audience, that the season of harvest had come to an end. And third, this is my favorite. We have the guesser calendar or the geezer calendar. Put this next picture up. The, there we go. I love the applied science of archaeology. Every time they stick a shovel into the earth, and they pull something out of it. It just confirms the text of scripture again and again and again and again. I freaking love it. I took this slide from Sandra Richter's lecture series. She's a PhD from California. And I took this slide from her lecture series. She teaches us to look at the writing. And she's like, this is very sloppy writing. So most likely this was done by a child. Check that out, kids. They say that this was written by a child and they know that it was written by a child because the writing is not as neat as a professional scribe. The letters are kind of all over the place. But here's the, here's the awesome thing. Kids, when you do some works of art, always sign it because you never know who's going to find it. That says Avi. That's the Hebrew name of the child who wrote this. And it is, it is in our, like, it's in our museums today. That's cool. Not only do we have this, but it confirms all of the agricultural 
months and layouts in a poem or song form. So this is like a practice tab for writing for kids to learn not only their seasons and how the sun comes up and the crops grow and then the, the crops are harvested, but kids, this becomes something that establishes the text of Scripture for us. This is awesome, isn't it? I love this stuff. This thing dates all the way back to 10th century BCE, and it cites the cycle of agricultural activities. I absolutely love it. Now, we need to begin to deal with the reality that Naomi is literally advising her daughter-in-law to engage in some really high-risk behavior. This is where the story gets juicy and everybody wants to lean in. I bet dollars to dimes right now. Dollars to dimes that 99% of the moms in this room would have nothing to do with the type of strategy that Naomi is offering right here. And I'll prove it by just asking you guys to read this. We said it earlier, scandalous, baby. <laughs> this is better than soap operas. This is not your average evangelical strategy. <laughs> it's not. You don't hear moms in church telling their kids that this is what they should do on the regular. We're just going to admit that out the gate. Like, this is not what we would deem to be good advice in the church today. Scandalous. Alan Ald says that when most modern readers are, sh he says that most modern readers are shocked. They're absolutely shocked when they read this in the Bible for the first time. They don't even understand how vital this episode is. They're just shocked by the content. Now, quoting Campbell, Hubbard writes that in the book of Ruth, we find that Ruth's actions in this chapter are carefully contrived along with the plans of Naomi and they're ambiguous and they include lots of sexual innuendo. Block comments that Ruth's preparations and choice of location for the encounter suggest the actions of a prostitute. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, in a little while. And Schwab reminds us that A, in the ancient Near East, threshing floors were linked to illicit sex. So acts of licentiousness were carried out at the threshing floor. B, under the cover of darkness is the time when we consider Sinful acts to be carried out, not acts of righteousness. And see, up to this point in Israel's history, except for the young man Joseph, no man in the biblical narrative with this type of valor who could champion and resist sexual temptation existed. No man in all of history, in Israel's history, apart from Joseph up to this point in time, had the self-control, had the fruit of the spirit that Joseph had to resist sexual temptation. So it's at this point in the narrative that we're asking ourselves as modern readers, is Naomi serious? <laughs> Are you kidding me? This is how you're telling your daughter-in-law to behave? The answer is yes, 100%. This is Naomi's advice to Ruth. At this point in the study, we need to be reminded that very little is stated explicitly, especially in chapter 3, verse 6 through 15, which we will tackle next week. 
We will tackle those verses next week. But it's worth a warning now. A lot of what we're going to cover next week is highly suggestive. So let's break down what we're looking at here in verse 3 and 4. We discover that Naomi explained her plan to Ruth and she did it with careful attention to detail. Command after command after command after command. You're going to do it this way, you're going to do it this way, and you're going to do it this way. Naomi advises Ruth to go to the harvest field to watch Boaz. Watch him carefully, she says. Watch him eat. Watch him drink. And then when he retires for the evening, then approach him. So I want us to take a moment to think about the potential dangers that Ruth faced as she even considered being obedient to Naomi. We can say potential dangers with confidence because as we read the story, we find out that it's dangerous to be in the fields of Bethlehem during the day. So imagine how much more dangerous it is under the cover of night. Now, obviously, Ruth has been instructed to make herself attractive. That's a given. And although it's not obvious in the immediate context, extra biblical parallels teach us that these words like bathe, anoint, and dress up, they create the alluring effect. Let's see if we can prove this. Ancient Egyptian poem reads, my breasts are smothered with fruit. My hair glistens with balm. When I am with you, I am a noble woman filled with pleasure. I am the queen of Egypt. Now, if we take this last line off of here, this seems to read a lot like the Song of Songs, doesn't it? Exactly. Whoa, that sounds like the Song of Songs. And isn't it interesting that in chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz will refer to Naomi as a noble woman, as a Eshachayel? One out of three times in the whole of the Old Testament that that title is given to a woman. Then we read this. This is a Sumerian story. Tammuz and Ishtar. Take Tammuz. He's the male, her husband. Wash him and anoint him with oil. Clothe him in a purple garment. Allow him to play the flute. Let him find contentment with prostitutes. This is cultic worship literature for the Sumerians. So we're beginning to see that this sequence of washing and anointing and dressing that's talked about in Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, it may have been an ancient literary trope. That's a device that notifies the reader that you should take, like, take recognition right here at this moment in the narrative because I'm probably giving you a symbolic way to show you a change in the character's, like, whole circumstances. So we have to ask ourselves, is Ruth's life really changing here? I, I wonder... Is Ruth's life changing here? And that's a very difficult question to answer because in the narrative this far, all we have is Naomi's plan. We don't have any of how Ruth is going to respond up to this point. So it's fair to say that Ruth's situation, if it's changing, we don't know if it's changing for the good or if it's changing for the bad. I don't know. And, 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 and nobody who was hearing this story then would have known either. Because... We can't armchair quarterback Ruth's heart and mind in this. We just don't have that authority. And I'll tell you what, here's another thing we don't know. We don't know how the people in her city were going to respond to her. But Ruth is an outsider. She's a Moabite, remember? And the people of Bethlehem, we have to ask ourselves, are they generally friendly to the outsider? Even more specifically, are they nice to the Moabite? How's the Bethlehemites going to re respond? Well, let's consider a couple things. Moab's origin story. We talked about it in our opening. Scandalous story. And Moab was born. Caused more problems than it brought solutions, right? So there's that. 
Think about how Moab as a nation in the future treats Israel historically. Remember Deuteronomy? They give no bread and no water to the Israelites as they're traveling through the wilderness. They just don't do that. They're like, oh, you need help? Stay off our land, find it somewhere else. And third, how about the behavior of the Moabite women at Shittim? Remember Numbers chapter 25 when Phinehas drives, drives his spear or his sword right through the back of the Israelite man who's fornicating with the Moabite prostitute in the door of the tent of meeting? I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say Moab's history and how the Bethlehemites would have been thinking about it or any Israelite for that matter, they would probably have not been favorable to, to Ruth. So culturally and socially speaking, I'd say that Naomi's instructions prompt a negative response toward Ruth from the people in the town of Bethlehem. That's a danger to Ruth. Second, we should address the potential dangers of being out in public after sunset. The threshing floors were often publicly owned, which means most of the time in, in archaeology, we find one threshing floor for every city. Very, very wealthy people had their own threshing floor. Boaz may have had his own, but interestingly enough, in Bethlehem, there's only one that we've uncovered. So it's probably corporately used by everyone in the city. So it serves multiple purposes in the ancient Near East. But undoubtedly, there would have been more men posted up throughout the evening in the vicinity of Boaz to aid him in protecting their crops. I don't know a single guy who thinks it's a smart idea to pull guard alone. You don't do that because you get overtaken. Read Ecclesiastes. It's smarter for you to have two or three than to be alone. Boaz would have known this. So he's not pulling guard and working in the evening, protecting his food and bringing about the process of the agriculture to favor him and his family and those under his responsibilities. He's not doing this alone. He's there with other men. Now, if there's dangers and Boaz needs his boys to back him up to face the potential danger, we know that Ruth in the evening alone would have been exposed to whatever it was, thieves, Animals, etc., etc. That's a that's a second danger. So third and finally, we need to address the personal danger. Remember, ancient Israel is a civilization is a civilization that's grounded in honor and shame. Honor and shame is very different from the way that we do things in America. No amount of darkness would hide the shame and embarrassment of approaching the wrong man under the cover of darkness. So this is a big gamble for Ruth when you consider all three of those dangers. This is why Naomi instructs her, notice the place where he lies down. Pay attention, Ruth. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself into some trouble. Given the gravity of the situation Ruth was about to face, I believe it's more than fair to say Ruth was about to find herself in a very compromising position. Everything, and we mean everything to include her very life, was on the line if she planned on submitting to, Boaz, to Naomi's instructions on how to approach Boaz. Danger lurks around every corner. Danger in everything and everyone when Ruth thinks about what her life is going to look like in the coming evening. Even Boaz poses a threat to Ruth. And we're confident to say that because we don't know how Boaz is going to respond to the uncovering of his feet. Modern readers of the text. In Hebrew, feet is a euphemism for genitals. 
So what is Naomi asking Ruth to do here? You decide. Because it covers everything from here to here in the Hebrew. Ambiguous text. What is Ruth going to do? How is Ruth going to interpret what Naomi is saying to her? And how is Boaz going to respond? All of this puts Ruth in danger. Ruth's intentions at this point are unclear. She hasn't even had the opportunity to respond to Naomi when we read this far in the text. Here's what we know. We know that wine and strong drink is involved. Gentlemen, how well is your faculties when it comes to decision-making when you are under the impression? So just remember, Boaz is under the impression of wine and strong drink. So we know that. We know that Ruth's actions, culturally speaking, are indicative of a prostitute. It's not to say that she is a prostitute, but her actions are indicative of a prostitute. Remember, the threshing floor is filled with men as they're going to spend the whole night separated from their wives. If I'm a working woman, I'm literally going to go work the field this evening because there's plenty of money to be made. That's the second thing we know. And third, there's some sort of uncovering that's about to take place. Everybody's squirming. <laughs> so we have to ask ourselves, is this whole strategy about a sexual encounter? Is this their way of springing a trap on Boaz and getting him caught up? Are they trying to catch the man slipping? Or is there something more at stake? It appears to me as I read the text that Naomi is willing to gamble on Boaz betting that he will refuse to take unfair sexual advantage of the situation involving the destitute Moabite widow. When I read this, I was like, my God, why didn't Ravi Zachariah and why didn't Carl Lentz study this text? Maybe men of God who have fallen to sexual temptation could do better if they would just study the Bible. Maybe they would have spared themselves and their families so much shame by saying no to sexual temptation. Like Joseph did. But here we are, looking at what's going on, and we're asking ourselves, there's a rod at stake. Is Boaz going to take unfair advantage of the marginalized? Do we take unfair advantage of the marginalized? It's a great question. Ask yourself. It's a hard question to answer if you're going to be honest. Now, Naomi appears that she's willing to bet on Boaz. Remember, Boaz bears the title of Gebor Chael, a man of great wealth. But it also has the connotation of a man who lives in upright life. And how could a man who lives in upright life engage in an illicit sexual encounter with a prostitute? So if Boaz is going to bear the title that no doubt the community gave him because it's an honor-shame culture, he doesn't just dub himself with the title. The community gives him the title. So is he going to bear the title well, or is he going to fall like so many other men? It's a great question. How could a man like Boaz, if he is a Gebor Hael, engage in illicit, in illicit sexual encounters? Not only that, how could Boaz in verse 
11 of chapter 3, bestow the title of Eshachael, the feminine form of the covenant title, on Ruth, identifying her as a moral woman of worth if she's out there acting like a prostitute. I'm just saying, one plus one equals two. So this probably means that Boaz couldn't, and he wouldn't, give in. Remember, honor, shame. It's his honor, and it's her honor that's stake. And there are other men in the field, no doubt. No walls. Imagine what would be heard. To read an overtly sexual interpretation of Naomi's directions to Ruth reeks of an agenda that is contra to the text and context. It reeks of an agenda. You know how we know that? Because you don't get anywhere in history of a sexual, overly sexualized interpretation until post-enlightenment era. So no one in history read an overly, an overly sexualized interpretation of this text until post-enlightenment. So does that tell you how they used to think versus how we think? I think so. Also, up to this point in the story, Naomi and Ruth have never expressed any interest in sex or progeny. Go back and read. I did. I had to check. <laughs> All that Naomi is after is rest and security. Menuha and menuha. That's what, that's what Ruth is, uh, that's what Naomi is after on Ruth's behalf. And we know, we know that that means conditional security based on marriage. Enter into the covenant of marriage as anyone would in Israelite customs and you will be provided for long-term security. So when you take the text out of context, you can put all kinds of overtly sexualized stuff in there. But when you read the text in context, it actually means you can't. Naomi's after rest and security. All of it's conditional upon the covenant of marriage. Daniel Block argues that any attempt at seduction would 100% undermine the entire enterprise. So church, we're back at it today, just like we were last week. We're talking about integrity. Integrity. This is what it comes down to. Are we a people of integrity? Is Ruth? Is Boaz? Is Naomi? A person who not only understands what integrity is, but embodies it. Is Boaz a man of integrity? If you don't know the answer, reread chapter 2. Is Ruth a woman of integrity? If you don't know, reread chapter 1 and 2. Then make your decision. Because I can't think for you. Nobody can think for you. You have to decide. After coming to your conclusion... I want us to ask ourselves, are we men and women of integrity? How do we fare in risky, sticky situations? When no one is looking, how do we fare? Do we realize that life as we know it is not getting any easier in the world that we live in? It's not. Look outside. Watch the news. Read the newspaper. Watch your favorite podcast. The world that we live in is not getting any easier and it's not getting any favorable toward Christians. How do we fare in risky, sticky situations? Do we live lives worthy of the call that God has placed on us or is it all a charade? Do we just show up to church on Sunday, check the box and then dip? These are hard questions. When we look at people 
Are we loyal to God first and then loyal to others? Is everyone and everything just a stepping stone to my next best? These are hard questions. No doubt, Naomi trusted both Ruth and Boaz. Listen, Naomi tells Ruth, you can trust Boaz when she says he will tell you what to do. That's a man of integrity. And Ruth was undoubtedly aware of the risks involved with the plan. She trusted Naomi just as she trusted Boaz. How could she not trust Boaz? Boaz provided everything she needed in the field, food and security. Look at her response. All that you say, I will do. Listen up, church. This statement is chalked full of trust. Ruth knows what it means to live a life of covenant faithfulness. And here's how Ruth knows. She knows how to live a life of covenant faithfulness because she has watched Naomi and Boaz live a life of covenant faithfulness. Ten years she spent with Naomi in Moab before coming back. She meets Boaz in the field and he provides for her. She has watched what people who embrace chesed look like. She knows how to live a life of covenant faithfulness because she's watched it happen in real time. We shouldn't be surprised that Ruth is capable of this. It comes full circle, everybody. How did we open up this sermon this morning? How can we expect the next generation to do well if we don't show them what it looks like as we live our lives? They're watching us. Everything we do, everything we say, they're watching us. And their brains are like little sponges. Is my dad about it? Is my mom about it? Or are they a fake? The first one to know is the kids. The next generation is our responsibility. And we cannot expect them to do well if we neglect to invest in them now. The next generation is our responsibility. Dictate, wisdom dictates that we are to train up a child in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. This is wisdom. It's not a guarantee, but it's an encouragement. Do this and just maybe. Because if you don't, who knows what's going to happen? I gave my parents hell. I gave my parents hell. When I was coming up as a little kid. But they chose to continue to live lives of covenant faithfulness. And I'll tell you what, God gave them the desires of their heart. All three of their sons have returned to serving the Lord. All three of them. And my parents' very lives ended up being the evidence that I needed when I was at my lowest. They're watching us. The younger generation is watching us. What do the stories of our lives teach our children? Are we the modern day equivalent of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz? Are we capable of coming out on top when we face situations that are high risk? Are we a people of covenant faithfulness? Because just as the future generations of Israel were dependent on the lives of the ones in the story we're reading about, so are the future generations that we're looking at in the seats. Dependent on our lives. We are the gospel that they are reading right now. It's my prayer that we are a people who live lives of chesed each and every day. 
Only then can we expect total obedience in response to the instructions we delegate out. If we aren't about it, we should not expect the children to be about it. So there it is. What would the world be like? What would the world be like if we told the next generation, this is how you're supposed to do something. And they responded with all that you say, I will do. Isn't that the goal, mom and dad? That would be awesome. All that you say, I will do. Well, guess what? They're watching us. How's that for a lofty goal? It's possible because God is real and he sent his spirit into the world. Not only to convict it of sin, but to tabernacle in the hearts of those who put faith in him. It's possible. Let's strive, AC Squared, to be exceptional. Not just meet the standard. Let's live our lives as if the next generation is dependent on it. Because you know what? They are. Right now, they're looking at us. What do our lives teach them day in and day out? Only you know. Only you know. So let's pray that the stories of our lives communicate Hesed, covenant faithfulness. Why? Why would we pray that? So that the covenant faithfulness of future generations exceeds our very own. That's why. Father, we thank you for the word. Because when we stand before your word, we recognize how wretched we truly are. But we don't have to be enslaved to sin. We can live lives that are worthy of the call that you have placed on us, Father. We can train up the next generation to go further than we ever dreamt of going. To be stronger than we ever were. To be wiser than we ever were. To fight better than we ever have. Father, I pray that we would take up that responsibility. These are the talons like the talents you gave in the parable. And God, we want to be responsible. We want to bring back more than you gave us. We don't want to bury it in the dirt and be fearful of you. We want to, res we want to expect a righteous reward if we do well with what you have entrusted to us. So Father, help us to live lives of covenant faithfulness because we live for your glory. And when we do that, God, we experience joy. So help us, Father, to train up the next generation in Jesus' name. Amen.